Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Raycon. We spend a lot of time talking about how to colonize other planets, but not so much about life for folks doing it. What does it take to become a colonist, and what would life be like as one? We've often looked at colonizing planets, particularly in our Outward Bound series, and some years back we did the Life in a Space Colony series trying to look more at the process of getting to those new worlds, in our solar system or beyond and getting set up. While both series were very popular, one complaint I sometimes get is that I never really addressed what it took to become a colonist and what their lives would be like. So today we'll be taking a look at life as a space colonist. That's a fairly broad topic since we need to look at everything from selection criteria and motivations to all the ways life might be like on all the different worlds we might colonize. Life would be very different under the dome on Mars or the lava tubes of the Moon or the cloud cities of Venus, and doubtless every planet in the galaxy will be unique in some way. Of course to experience those unique worlds, you first have to be selected as a colonist and make the journey there. It is highly unlikely any planet will have folks arriving without permission after the first wave gets in and establishes a radar array around the planet, which would likely occur on the earliest of days. So any ships going there will have permission to land, unless they're flat out invading. You might be able to get on board as a stowaway, but not likely, there is no air drag in space so they notice even a small difference in mass, not to mention water and air consumption, and odds are future cataloging and inventory systems would note someone hiding a crate. For today we're assuming you got to your colony openly and with permission. Now down the road it might be they are in so desperate need of volunteers that the screening process for coming is that you have a heartbeat, can sign your name, and show no obvious signs of being a psychopath, but it's also rather likely they'd be able to be fairly picky, at least in the early days and possibly forever. So a pivotal aspect of colonist selection is going to be a supply and demand issue, Can they pick from the cream of the crop, or do they need to scrape the barrel or incentivize to get their colonists? That might depend on the individual colony too, some paradise planet might have no shortage of volunteers willing to pay money, while some trash heap of a world might need to offer big signing bonuses and still take folks most would not want as neighbors. Speaking of money though, it does raise the issue of what the selection criteria are when we're talking about the cream of the crop. It might not be too obvious either. Back when we were looking at how to survive a doomsday in Evacuation Earth, a point I made there was that while we often assume our best and brightest scientists would be going into the bunker or arc, a civilization would be better off protecting its remnants in most cases by bringing some skilled teachers and a library rather than its best theorists and experimentalists, as they won't be doing much experimenting or theorizing. Something similar applies to colonization. You need scientists but they're not doing groundbreaking new research or solving problems in the way we tend to see in sci-fi shows, where there's always a science officer figuring out life and death problems every episode. So too, a lot of what a colony needs is labor and breeding stock, to put it bluntly, but there's a good chance virtually all labor is going to be robots and the critical skill in short demand will be people who can fix and tweak robots. Maybe the thing any colony is going to need the most though, if they want to make green new worlds, is a lot of court hauled green cash. It doesn't really matter what their economy is, more or less like our own or so high-tech and post-scarcity that money is something strictly used for very bizarre or unique desires, 
starting a colony is going to be far more resource intensive than most other daily activities. Maybe you've got self-replicating machines that can take a blueprint, land on an asteroid, and give it into a spaceship complete with all its colonial gear and journey supplies ready for 10,000 colonists, but that's still more resource intensive than building an orbital space settlement, let alone telling those same robots to build 10,000 houses and the necessary support infrastructure to feed and supply their inhabitants. The energy needs of an interstellar ship just to get up to speed and back down again will generally be orders of magnitude higher than the energy need to run life support and hydroponics for that trip's duration, potentially a million years or more of what it would take in terms of energy to keep folks alive on a stationary settlement. Once you've done that you have a whole new world or solar system to draw resources from, but the initial expenditure per colonist is huge compared to what is needed to sustain another person staying home. Maybe the coin isn't monetary but influence or prestige, though most likely it's both. You've got to get settlement rights on a place from whoever controls that, you've got to get the ship built, you've got to support all those colonists for the trip, and you've got to pay for all the screening and training that comes with them. Then there are the support personnel, not just for the setup and voyage, but after it too. Unless you're completely cutting ties with Earth, you'll need folks who stay behind to provide continuing support making sure you're getting sent the latest tech updates as well as news, movies, and books, and warning you if a shift in politics means the next ship coming behind you will be sending in troops instead of additional colonists. So that's one role in a colony that we tend not to think of, the folks who won't even be going. They may outnumber the folks who do go, as doubtless they will for all our force bases throughout the solar system, with far more folks at mission command and attached enterprises than actually at the base. However, in a lot of cases, if we're not thinking of governments establishing colonies, it's more likely to be big groups, for ideology or commerce, much like colonies founded in the Age of Sail. Early colonies probably will tend to be founded by existing terrestrial governments, but the interstellar ones probably not, not after the first few. We think of colonies and we think of the first ones, but while Alpha Centauri might be a bit over 4 light years away, there are over a thousand solar systems that are within 10 times that distance, and a thousand times that within a hundred times the distance. Of that first thousand stars alone, the inner core where a message can be sent or applied to in under a century, how many prestige efforts by governments would we expect? And what's their motivation for doing more? Barring fast and light travel, there is no realistic scenario for adding them as territory the way a nation might now, or even might contemplate for the solar system's other worlds. So most of these in the inner core, within a century of communication, will probably not be settled by nations as some sort of effort to win prestige or expand their turf. This leaves us groups willing to do it for its own sake or profit, or because a prophet told them to. An awful lot of colonies and exoduses down the years have been motivated by religious leaders and promised lands, and I'd suspect a very large number of colonies will be founded with that in mind, and historically religious groups are the largest share of charitable donations. Fully a third of charitable donations in the United States are directly to religious organizations for example, so if you're having problems finding commercial opportunities for funding and governments aren't funding them beyond the first handful or some incentivizing, then I'd say the most obvious pathway for funding would be religious groups or more broadly ideological groups. So that might be your first question on the colonist screening application, are you a member of this group? Or can you afford to pay in your share for the expedition? Sending second and third sons on to find a new land is certainly a common approach historically too, it could easily be both wealthy individuals seeking new lands for themselves or their children, ideological groups funding new colonies, and of course not so wealthy people giving up their life savings to buy a chunk of currently desolate, lifeless world. 
Now for the individual or family group, this is potentially a heck of a good investment. Whether you have life extension to permit you to see a future world yourself, and possibly live to see it turn from barren rock to paradise, or you're aiming for that future for your descendants, it's one of exponential growth if successful. Just to give some perspective, even if a colony ship or fleet included fully a million people, and was only claiming a specific planet, not an entire solar system, an Earth analog in terms of size and land-to-sea ratio, if evenly divided, would be 150 square kilometers or 37,000 acres apiece. As we discussed in the Life in a Space Colony series, you probably never settle a single planet when you're going to a new star system, you start off settling various moons and asteroids to get all the infrastructure you need for terraforming a planet before ever landing on one, however that informs us what the stakes are both in terms of the actual land stakes and what the payoff for the gamble is. It's even bigger for something like a Gardener ship, the colonization method we introduced in that series and expanded on in Galactic Gardeners, where a ship moves from system to system out toward the edge of the galaxy colonizing, replacing its numbers in the decades between stops and colonizing each new system with whatever portion of its crew felt like disembarking. To be a colonist, if successful, is to be immortal, or at least very long remembered. Most towns whose history isn't buried so far back in antiquity, though as founded before written records were common, generally have a name associated with them, sometimes accompanied by a plaque, statue, or some other monument, which serves as a continued legacy for the personal peoples who were instrumental in founding it. Even in situations where person-oriented monuments are absent, culturally specific landmarks typically remained to tell those who came after what the culture valued. Something analogous to the Rosetta Stone, Code of Laws, or Voyager Disc might serve to ensure that founding colonists in the societies were fundamentally remembered, if or when their individual identities have been lost. So there we have our big motivations for interstellar colonization. The game will be a bit different for interplanetary colonization, or if we invent faster than light travel or communication, but for interstellar colonists it means leaving forever to put your mark on a world for as long as they keep records. There are a million mountains on Earth, in a new world having one name for you would be a minor item, same for islands and maybe even continents and future metropolises. The least colonist, who barely had the funds or prestige to get a cramped berth on the ship, is likely to have a statue erected to them in the town square someday. For people with more capital, the equivalent of second sons of powerful families, or those with power who just want to leave, even having the whole planet named after you is plausible, or having a whole mountain carved in your likeness. Those are powerful incentives. For ideological groups, it's a chance at the promised land. I suspect most folks, even if just in a moment of passing exasperation, have wished they lived somewhere composed of folks who agreed with them. For those who are really passionate about it, it's the chance to found an entire world that from its inception followed the teachings of Adam Smith or Karl Marx or Jesus or Buddha, potentially a lot more niche than that too a specific sect or ideological faction with maybe a few hundred thousand devoted followers decides to pack up and ship out some or all of them to a new world. They might even get help from others. After all, exile is a classic way to get rid of folks who your civilization, or at least its leaders, find irritating and troublesome. Offering them a grant to get the heck out of your territory might be an appealing option for many nations. Closer to home, in time and space, we might ask what the criteria for our early colonists will be. This is a lot more likely to be government or company-funded ventures since it's close to hand, strange though that is to say about places a million times further away from us than the most backwater and isolated chunk of Earth from wherever we personally live, but our solar system is all within hours of communication time. 
Early colonies here on Earth were weeks if not months away by travel, which also meant by communication since someone had to carry word, so every place in this solar system, short of the outer Oort cloud, enjoys an advantage of faster communication than our historical colonies. Because of that there is a lot more reason for nations, banks, investors, and corporations to take a heavy interest in colonizing our solar system, since they'd be funding the endeavors or loaning the money for the enterprises setting up there, they are in a position to be picky about colonist selection criteria. One thing neither they nor interstellar colonies are likely to care about is genetics, since we will probably have good gene therapy long before we're doing a ton of colonizing. Uh, that's another common trope of science fiction that probably won't hold up the idea that we select colonists for best genetics. Ultimately the big two is did you pay to make the trip or get paid to, and it is likely to be a little of both, and if you're going there to set up a new life or going principally for a job, do you own a dome of your own or are you a technician there at a base for a set contract period? Let's imagine you are a Mars colonist and you've purchased 25 square kilometers of good Martian regolith to call your own. You're not on a base, it's your own place an hour's dune buggy ride from the base. Did you bring a spouse and kids or are you looking to start a family there? Maybe it's just you and your cat or dog, or their robot analogs. You got your first dome from some pre-assembled and dropped kit, square in the middle of your 5x5km or 3x3 mile plot of land, and since there are no trees you can see all your plot. You've got food for a while, water, air, and some machinery. What kinds of machinery? Well, probably a 3D printer, hopefully one much better than modern ones but don't expect it to be a Star Trek replicator. You've got some sort of power source, probably a radioisotope thermal generator and some solar panels. Are you going to farm? To terraform? To mine? Are you part of a cottage industry? All of the above? Let's say all of the above. You have a kiln for making clear dome panels out of the local regolith, we'll say it's a microwave oven for making basaltic glasses. You paid extra to bring along a few hundred square meters of solar panels to power it to the tune of 30,000 watts at peak noon production. At that production rate you can be churning out around 100 square meters of glass panels a day, depending on weight, efficiency, and type, we'll keep it around figure. One of your neighbors specializes in making steel or aluminum struts for the panels, and it's basically the business that lets you both bring in some money to buy other stuff. It sounds like a lot, every day you're churning out a decent sized greenhouse in terms of panels, but it would take you 363 Martian years, or nearly 700 Earth years to dome in your plot of land. Are you selling most of yours or is it just your side business to buy things you need? And if the latter, is doming in your whole 5x5km plot your goal, essentially pay-or-tail for your chunk of Mars? Who's making the dirt for the interior of all those domes? You can't use raw Martian regolith. How about the raw material for those panels? Are you scooping up and refining that yourself or buying it from someone else? While some folks prefer to be self-sufficient and others specialize, let's say we're a bit of both, since from a practical perspective, even if something happens to such a person, someone else can more or less fill that role. We have a neighbor who has vats he dumps regolith into to process and brew microbes into and sell to folks building farming domes. When you don't need room for plants you just use some metal sheeting and rocks to build yourself a big thick structure with plenty of protection from outside, but you've got to buy your airlocks between everything, even rooms of the same structure probably. You buy air tanks off folks for storage and you bake oxygen out of your glass as you make those panels, and maybe you sell excess oxygen to folks. You pay a pretty penny for all the nitrogen you need for those plants and for your water brought down from the poles. You spend a lot of time cleaning and polishing those solar panels, since you've got to keep them free from dust. 
Once a week you get in your land crawler and head into town, a base of a few hundred where you can get some shopping done, sell some of your panels and some of the produce you grow in your domes. You can call your neighbors up on the phone easily enough, you've got a satellite phone and you pay a pretty penny for your uplink. There's probably plenty of social media and chat rooms, and if you don't mind the signal lag of several minutes to an hour, depending on how close Earth is at the time, you can chat with your friends and family back home. But you like going to town to see actual humans, there's probably a restaurant there, probably a bar, probably some places folks hang out. You had a good year so you donated some panels to the community project to build a base garden park, and there's talk of getting a football field built and arguments over if it should be standard sized or adjusted to Martian gravity, and if so, in what way. You also blew some of your excess money buying a spacesuit for your dog so Fido could walk around with you while you were out checking the solar panels or poking around your tract of land for signs of valuable minerals. You've added to your solar panel farm and added some more kilns, and folks often visit to buy some and spend the evening having dinner and playing a board game. Maybe you've built a dome big enough for some limited livestock, perhaps even large enough to support a small woodland or orchard. This is life. It's rougher in some ways than being a pioneer in colonial days, you can't just get a plot of land and knock some trees over to build a house then graze animals on it and grow crops, not that doing that was ever easy either. In other ways it is easier, you are never any more alone than you need to be, with instant communications planet wide, and you probably have far better digital entertainment than any of us nowadays have, endless books and films and games and virtual reality to spend your free time on, though you probably have to pay for those too. One day in town you meet the person of your dreams and decide to start a family. Maybe a few new colonists arrive and stay with you for a time while they set up their own domes, maybe on a piece of land you're renting or selling, maybe on an adjoining lot, or working for you inside your expanding domes, probably even buying some robots too. If you have kids, do they go to school somewhere or is it all online, some variant of homeschooling and virtual conferencing maybe? The town's growing, do they have an appointed leader from back home or someone you all elect? Is it important to you or something you find mildly irritating when you go into town and have to pay sales taxes and some official pokes you about paying taxes on all those panels you make and sell? The answer will be different on every world, and probably every settlement of Mars too, I doubt any one nation from Earth will succeed in claiming it all for themselves. What about Venus? Are they cooling the place down like we looked at in Winter on Venus, or is it all floating cities? If the latter, instead of domes do you have something like a houseboat, your own home floating in the acidic clouds? What do you do for work there? Build more of them? Refine nitrogen and sell it onto the nearest cloud city for export to Mars and orbital habitats? Maybe you build giant floating solar panels? Or are you an asteroid miner? Maybe you have a whole asteroid to yourself and even signals to your nearest neighbors take a minute. Do you have your own spaceship you use to bring your whales back to a bigger asteroid settlement for sale, or do you refine it on hand and sell it to passing ships who gather it for a cut of the value? Or are you an ice miner out in the Kuiper Belt? Do you live on Europa, Jupiter's icy moon? If so, are you on the surface or is your home a submarine prowling its subsurface oceans, docking to tall skinny cities that slice through kilometers of ice between ocean and airless surface? Or are you a colonist to Tau Ceti, kept alive by medical technology for the century-long voyage of a dozen light years and finally arriving at this new system and its worlds? Did you sleep for the trip or spend a century awake working your passage as part of the crew? What would you do if the trade you had in mind when you arrived, and on which you spent most of your funds and cargo allowance, was rendered obsolete by a tech update from home during the journey? 
Do you trade it off for scrap and spare parts and become the equivalent of a farmhand for another colonist till you can earn new land, or did your fellow colonists pitch in for you and others rendered redundant to help you start something new? Why did you go? Was it because you wanted to get away from home or because the colony offered a chance to live under whatever code or creed you all thought was right but most folks back home did not? Was it a communal endeavor? Maybe you all owned some stock in the corporate colony with its charter you all agreed to sign on to. Was it all equal shares or did most folks have a thousand shares while some just had a hundred or none at all, or a million? Did you have a specific assigned job or were you more of a freeholder? Do you break your back working or mostly do office work and programming for robots who do the heavy lifting? Or are the robots so good they don't need much or any instruction? Are they so good that you arrived at a ready-made colony created by a seed ship and simply moved in? Or maybe you were even grown in an artificial womb around a distant sun and raised by an AI. Or maybe you're an AI or a digitized person and the world you moved into was a virtual one, as we explored in Virtual Worlds. A critical notion here, all of these maybes and ifs aren't because we don't know which will happen, though of course we do not, but rather because we would expect them all to happen, and each with a thousand variants, over a million worlds and untold billions of colonists each leaving Earth in days, centuries, and millennia to come, each colony founded with a different goal, each a different and probably unexpected path to follow, each with unique challenges and each colonist with their own. As the question of if we'll be able to find volunteers, folks willing to pay for the trip or demanding pay for it, just ask yourself if any of these scenarios appeal to you. If they did, you've got your answer. For me, I don't know. I'm a rural kid used to my gardens and forests and quiet, and married to a farm girl who raised six younger siblings in a house she helped her parents build, and I still don't think either of us would be inclined to the pioneering life. I remember when driving on our honeymoon we listened to an audiobook chronicling an English settler's life when she and her husband and children moved to Frontier Illinois in the early 1800s, and while I found it captivating I can't see myself personally ever boarding a spaceship for a colony for all that I give much to give others the opportunity to do so and vicariously live their dreams with them. How about yourself? Would you pack up and journey to an alien world to live and raise a family under an alien sun? We've got some announcements and our upcoming schedule but first, a lot of us have had to adjust recently to increasingly mobile offices and conducting business over the phone or via a phone app for conferences, and if you've used many Bluetooth headsets or earbuds you know how often it can be hard to hear them in a crowd. If you're looking for a good pair of earbuds with noise isolating features, I'd recommend trying out Raycon's Everyday E25 earbuds. They fit in snugly and discreetly for a noise-isolating fit so you can hear them even in a crowd, plus they've got a good battery life of 6 hours of playtime and a very compact charging case with its own battery that can recharge them 4 times while you're on the go. They also make the best kind of holiday gift, something your friends and family can use every day. So if you're looking for a good pair of premium earbuds that sounds as amazing as other top audio brands but is about half the price of other premium earbuds, try out Raycon. Raycon was founded by Ray J and is a favorite of folks like Snoop Dogg and Melissa Etheridge for their wide range of stylish and fun colors and super comfortable fits, and if you'd like to give them a try and help support the show while you're at it, now's the time to get the best prices of the year on Raycons. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only. Click the link in the description box or go to buyraycon.com slash to get 20% off your Raycon purchase. 
Also, if you're done binge-watching SFIA and are looking for something else to listen to, there's a new audio drama out, Dreaming, from SFIA's own Jerry Gorn. Jerry is one of our longtime editors here and has also co-written around a dozen of our episodes, and I sometimes help him edit his own writing, and some while back, I talked to him to uploading some of his short stories for folks to listen to, and he started up his own channel for that, Jerry's Stories, that's been growing rapidly the last few months, and this newest installment, Dreaming, is a first attempt with a full cast of voice actors and it came out great, so make sure to check it out. Incidentally, I often get asked by folks who mostly listen to our shows if I could release them on audio only, especially for folks listening on a commute and getting their bandwidth chewed up by our high definition videos. If you didn't know, we do release every episode as audio only, in two versions, with and without music in the background, and those are always linked in the episode descriptions here, but are available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud for free download. I often get asked by folks why we never do a Thanksgiving special, since we've often done holiday themed episodes before, and if you're curious, it's simply because we do our episodes on Thursdays and Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, so doing a Thanksgiving episode every year would feel kind of redundant. Nonetheless, I've always thought of Thanksgiving as a holiday that's about remembering that we have much to be thankful for even when it's been a fairly hard year, and I suspect that sums up 2020 pretty well for a lot of us. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in every week, and I hope you've got things to be thankful for this year too, and Happy Thanksgiving! So this was our last episode for November, but we still have our monthly livestream Q&A coming up Sunday afternoon, November 29th at 4pm Eastern Time. Then we'll head into December to ask how we're going to go about surviving this next century, and how hopefully we'll do more than survive but thrive, including setting up our first space colonies. The week after that we'll ask what it will take for those colonies to grow from simple outposts into genuine settlements and cities, then we'll follow that up with a look at how we'll terraform these new worlds. If you want alerts when those other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon, or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a happy Thanksgiving!